Welcome to the Abundant Leaders Podcast. I'm Tenji, your host, a certified executive coach and leadership developer with more than a decade of experience advising executives, managers, and companies on how to perform at their peak and find deeper alignment and fulfillment. My dream is for all of us to live in the truth and fullness of who we are so that we can have the biggest lives and most fulfilling careers that are possible for us. It is all possible for us. Together, let us lead ourselves, our people, and our organizations with confidence, courage, and wisdom. This is our time to heal and expand, to thrive, and to lead abundantly. This is the third installment of the Real Talk series, and Alinafe is back. Before I remind you all who Alinafe is, let me tell you what the Real Talk series is about. It's a regular segment where I'm chatting with my girls and other people. Who knows? A man might join me one day. And we're talking about our on-the-ground career and leadership experiences. These are casual conversations where we explore a work or career topic that we've experienced and share different perspectives and pick each other's brains. I hope these relatable conversations will inspire you to have conversations of your own over lunch with your friends or colleagues that you trust about what's going on at work. So let me tell you who Alinafe is. Ali Nafe is a management consultant, development finance student, and content creator. She finds meaning in using her gifts for the betterment of the world, whether it is through helping businesses unlock their full potential, facilitating sustainable development on the continent, or creating content that resonates and inspires. She's also a personal development enthusiast who is actively doing the work to be the best version of herself, especially as a leader. Alinafe is also one of my closest friends, and that is why I invited her to the podcast. She thinks very differently to me, and it's quite nice discussing topics from two different angles. I have one perspective and one lens through which I see the world, and that will come through quite strongly if you've been listening to me for a while, and Alinafe brings a different angle. I really love how deep and close we are and the trust that we have in our relationship. And what you'll hear in this conversation is that we get so candid about, you know, some of the insecurities that can really rise up, especially when we are stepping into a more senior leadership role, whether that is middle management or we're shifting across to more senior management, right? The question around, am I adding value, right? Am I, am I shaping the answer becomes a a very interesting one for us because we're more and more removed from what feels like the frontline tangible activity that our businesses, like the companies we work for, the businesses that we're a part of generate. And so how do we rethink the notion that I have to have all the answers and I have to show that I'm bringing answers in order to be valuable as a leader? That's the conversation we're having today. All right, let's dive in. Before we begin this episode, I'm excited to share the launch of Discover What Gives You Meaning, a 90-minute workshop that will help you to get to the heart of who you uniquely are and what matters most to you and what enables you to thrive so that you can use this information to create a career that's more fulfilling in purpose and sustainable for you. Being your powerful, authentic, 
confident self is the key to attracting aligned career opportunities, building trust-based relationships and support networks, and achieving high performance and lasting leadership impact. Many of us spend our early careers building skills, solving for financial security, working hard to fit into corporate culture, and sacrificing a lot to achieve our aspirations. But when we've achieved all of that, we find that something is missing, and we're not quite as fulfilled as we thought we'd be, or we're deeply burnt out. Discover what gives you meaning, helps you to return to the heart of who you are, and translate this information into what it means for the type of career, company, role, and way of working that is a good fit for who you are and the life you want to create for yourself. Then, it gives you practical, immediate steps to bring yourself into more alignment with your truth. This is the path to abundance. If this is what you're looking for, visit tenjimoyana.com forward slash discover what gives you meaning or click the link in the show notes. Hi, Nafe. Hi, Tenji. How are you? I'm so good. <laughs> I love how we're acting like we haven't been kicking for the last hour. I know, I know, I know. But we kind of have to like, you know, act like this is the first time we're talking about this and coming to the pod together. Otherwise, (laughs) I feel like everybody's going to feel like they've missed out on a lot of keys, right? Exactly. And unfortunately they have because we're like best friends, right? (laughs) But welcome to the pod. Thanks for being here again. I am so happy to be back. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you. And um, today, I've already done a little intro on you. Anyone who's here for the first time has learned a little bit about your background. But for the people who are here for the first time, is there one fun thing that you are learning about or like playing around with in your life that is like giving you a lot of creative joy right now? Right now, um, you're going to laugh at me a bit. I'm like learning dance moves from. What? <laughs> I'm like learning dance moves from like the really big music videos right now. So, by the way, I am obsessed with Sean Bankhead. People might not know who he is, but he is a really big African American choreographer. He does videos. I think he's done for Cardi B. He's done some for Megan Thee Stallion. He's recently done one that I really love with Victoria Monet. And I used to be really into dancing in my 20s um but now that you know we're not really outside like that um i've just been learning the choreography in my mirror at home <laughs> i love that oh my god i love that especially because you have quite an intense career and yeah. you're in the middle of your masters so it just sounds like such a nice way to decompress de-stress get back in your body remember that life is also fun when you aren't stuck in front of a laptop all day like, I love that youthful energy for you. Exactly. I'm really enjoying it. Yeah. All right. So I do that with most of the guests because it's just a way to get to know you personally. I know I didn't prepare you for that question in advance, but <laughs> <laughs> thanks for being game and ready to go. Um, today, we're having a conversation about the myth of when we started our careers, thinking that, um, you know, you have to know everything. And it becoming even more pronounced as we approach leadership and believing that as a leader, you have to know all the answers. Yeah. And that's not true, but it's always very difficult to learn that that's not true. And there's always a bit of a reckoning that shows you that as long as you continue to believe this, it will actually now limit your ability to really be a great leader. 
And I wanted to just chat about that myth, you know, what we've experienced with that and how we've overcome it and, you know, the kind of energy, what it's demanding of us when we're trying to show up differently and, you know, just have an open conversation there for anyone who's listening who, you know, if you, if you guys have been on the pod, I did a previous episode called, um, is your definition of expertise blocking you from leading? And that took a different angle to this conversation. We're going to look at it a little bit differently here. Um, because this is then about just having all the answers and we're going to talk about our different experiences. So Nafi, I'd love to just start with you here and kick off the conversation around when did you discover, like what kind of created this myth or this idea for you that leaders have to have all the answers and what was the pressure point that just showed you this needed to change? Yeah, so I would say that myth for me came from two places. So the first one is by observing the leaders around me. And I think leaders could be anywhere, right? It's not just work, it is, you know, in your community, at church, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, my entire life looking at leaders that I admired, they always seem to have all the answers. I think the traditional model of leadership has been very paternalistic right? The leader is this big person at the very top who is very wise and very knowledgeable and always has something wise and sensible to say, right? I think that's kind of the first thing. The second reason I think I developed this myth was because of, I think, the education system, because we are rewarded for being right Mm -hmm. and having the right answers and how good or intelligent you are is measured by how close you can get to 100%. So I think if you put those things, those things together for me, I, and you know, like I did pretty well in school, it really enforced that idea that for me to be validated as I am good, I am smart, I know what I'm talking about, I must always have the right answer. Yeah, yeah. And you know, that's so interesting. I hadn't thought about the impact of school, but that's 100% a place where it starts. And I remember being in chemistry class and we'd answer i mean i love this chemistry teacher because she was trying to make us believe in ourselves by doing this however like if she'd ask a question and if you raise your hand and she picks you and you say i think the answer is boron she's like don't think no (laughs) (laughs) and i was like oh oh okay interestingly it actually made me hesitate to raise my hand because then i'd say well if i'm not 100 percent sure of my answer i only have a right to speak or a right to contribute when I'm 100% certain. Yes. And that's actually not at all how the best ideas are created. And so that was one place where it came for me as well. And the other place I think where it came was, you know, if you think of the way things like in school, like, and jobs, right? In school, you're trained to be, let's say, an accountant. And this is the more Southern Hemisphere and like English, Cambridge kind of approach to education where you learn a subject and then you go get hired for that subject. Um, Non-liberal arts education maybe is what I should say. It was like you learn a content area and then you're hired for your knowledge in that content area. And then you're promoted in your role for your knowledge in that content yeah. area. Yeah. And you're promoted to leadership because you've demonstrated knowledge, consistent knowledge, and the consistent ability to bring to the table your knowledge in a valuable way for the organization. 
and that's what gets you then a leadership role. So you start actually attributing your performance to how much you know. Yes. And therefore, it, it feels like also when you're looking at to bring up patriarchy in corporate environments, the people who are promoted are the guys who are like doing the equivalent of raising the hand and saying, I know the answer's boring, right? Like before the podcast started, I mean, you said, you know, it's the, it's the guy that goes up to the whiteboard with the marker and says, hi, let me show you. <laughs> let me show you the answer. Let me, you, and, and you know, it's almost like the way the position it is, I'm just spitballing here, right? And they <laughs> mark up and down on the whiteboard and present this brilliant answer and everybody's like, oh, brilliant, let's do that, right? Yeah. That's what I thought leadership looked like. Exactly. And that's what you then start thinking, if I can't do that, then I'm not a leader. And if, therefore, I either have to start imitating that so that I can show that I'm a leader <laughs> and pretending that I feel that way, even when I don't feel that way, I'm not sure that I have the answer. And um, for me, that was like a big part of the challenge. And there's one more thing, honestly, for me that I, I think was at play. And I don't know if you maybe experienced any of that was there was this feeling of um, contribution-based love. Like this feeling that if you can bring something tangible, then we will love you family dynamics, certainly in my family and most families, right? They're these unspoken contracts of, well, you do this and you do that and you bring that. And so this person's like family, you know, clout or culture clout is the ability to do this and they do that consistently and it's something demonstrable, visible, measurable, blah, blah, right? So it's the things you do or achieve or bring to the table. And it felt a little bit to me then so so then it was like I had to perform in that regard for me to get the love and the belonging in my family. And then you go to a group project and it's like, okay, your ability to come and bring, you know, the outcomes of the work that you've done and like, look, I did this and therefore I have a right to stay in the group. Otherwise, God forbid I get kicked out because I haven't shown that I'm doing XYZ, right? And then you get to corporate and you're on a team and then it becomes, well, what is the thing you know, right? The job descriptions are written with that language, right? What are you going to bring to the table? And it's going to be these things we can measure. And then in your performance review, it is not these qualities you have, but it is, oh, great, you know a lot about supply chain <laughs> or you know a lot about this, you know, modeling area or um, statistical software and you're an expert in that. And so the way that then it feels like the team's contribution to each individual's contribution to the team's success is the specific content expertise they bring or knowledge that they bring or, or skill set that they bring that is recognizable by everyone. And so when you aren't directly bringing that thing in these situations or, or interactions, then it's like, well, did I add value? Right. But like, there are many other ways and other things that leaders imperatively have to do in order to be leaders and drive outcomes that have nothing to do with that little contribution thing. So for me, I, I felt very insecure if I didn't feel like I could name, I'm bringing my talent expertise and my knowledge of XYZ and my ability to answer all these questions. And if I don't bring that answer, I'll be kicked out of the group. I mean, I love that we're not even like 20 minutes into this podcast and you are already talking about family dynamics because <laughs> <laughs> that's where all this stuff comes from 
comes from, right? And you are absolutely right. I mean, I definitely can relate to what you're saying because for me, um, I mean, I'm the firstborn, right? Mm. Um, And I've always been really smart. Um, And that became a bit of a lightning rod, I would say, right? Where it was like, if I am doing well in school, and that report card comes, and my father is proud, I am the best thing that ever happened to that household. So for the next month, you know, I get all the attention, I get all the toys, Hundreds. he brags about me to his friends, um, and then when I don't... Good luck, honey. <laughs> <laughs> don't come home. Basically, like... I mean, you better make a plan and maybe go to your grandparents or something because it's not going to be nice, right? And, you know, in retrospect, I think my parents were doing what they knew to encourage me to be successful, Mm -hmm. right? But it created a dynamic that said, for me to be accepted and loved in this household, I need to deliver X. Mm -hmm. And that X was good, great. And And I mean, and I learned how to kind of like, you know game the whole thing right because ultimately what that looked like is that it consistently got great marks all the way up until my you know degree right um but it then also created you know the impetus to always perform yeah i can't be exactly how i am you know and be accepted I need to be a certain way. And that certain way is that I need to be competent (laughs) and I need to be adding value. I need to be earning my seat on this bus. Mm -hmm. And demonstrably competent, right? There's an A symbol that Mm -hmm. can be attributed Mm -hmm. (laughs) to what you're bringing. Mm. Yeah. And I think it actually got worse when I started working Mm -hmm. because, I mean, I mean, I, I think probably if people listen to, to the last episode we did together, people would know that I'm from Malawi. Um, you know, Malawi is primarily African people. Um, you know, you never walk around with the feeling of really being an other, right? Um, other than on the basis of your gender. Um, and when I started working, I was like a quadruple other, right? I was 22. I was, you know, black. Um, I was not South African. <laughs> And I was a woman, you know? And what that meant is that in every room I was, I was always another because of one of the things or multiples of the things, right? And I think it created even more pressure for me to demonstrate competency, right? Because there was always like a sense, whether imagined or real, right? Like, I mean, uh, there was always a sense of, I really now need to prove that I belong here. Mm. Because I'm, um, you know, one of us is not like the, the others. I mean, <laughs> God forbid they think I'm a diversity hire. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I think also when we think about the dynamics of, you know, patriarchy and sometimes kind of sexism in the workplace and ageism, mm. when you are young um, and you're a woman, there's always like pressure to really assert yourself. Mm-hmm. And say, hey, I also belong here, and this is my space, and my ideas carry as much weight. Um, so there definitely was a lot of pressure to kind of always have the answers, mm-hmm. um, and always be competent, and always demonstrate that. Yeah, especially if with that kind of intersectionality that you're speaking about, um, when you're fighting for the mic in the boardroom <laughs> or in a meeting, and then you get it, 
you'd better drop a, a bomb. You, right? know I mean? you know what I mean? You spend like 15 minutes trying to get a chance to speak. You can't now come and be like, I wonder if we're thinking about this the right way. <laughs> <laughs> you have to be like, we are thinking about this the wrong way because X, Y, Z, and I have the fact and the data and what we should be doing is Y. And that's intense. You know what I mean? You don't always have that. I mean, except I kind of do, right? So like for me, uh, in the, okay. So in the, let's say 75% of the time where I am not sure and I want to explore that sort of thing, um, I definitely don't want to say something, Mm. right? It's definitely hard for me. But you have to remember I'm an Aries. Mm. And with that Aries comes like a lot of fire and conviction. So the 25% of the time that I'm sure... Like, I am, like, roaring it from the rooftops, right? <laughs> so I think in some ways, also, like, my personality lent itself to that kind of behavior, which actually marginalized the parts of me that we're not always sure even further, Mm-mm. right? Because now I felt like if I'm not feeling the conviction and the deep fire to make my point because I'm so deeply passionate about it, then I'm not going to say anything. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what this whole paradigm creates right it, it creates a loss of all the other things that drive value that people can bring to the table and you spoke about your personality type um you're also an introvert so yes. you have an orientation towards kind of listening taking things in da, 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 processing processing and then that's also the 25 percent. that's how you get to that answer then it's like i've been listening so much and now i have something to say i want to say it yes i'm not that right so one i'm a Piscean <laughs> and you know um, that means like my brain is just floating around picking up pieces of information da, 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 da. and as I hear more and ask more questions then I join dots and then as I join the dots then it's like hmm something's happening here but for me to be able so one right my first contribution in a, a conversation will almost always not be an answer my best and most authentic contribution will always be a question Mm. because that is one of my superpowers. Actually, it's the ability to ask the right question and get to the heart of what's really going on. And so I'm not going to do, I'm not going to be like you, right? Where then you've thought through da da da, come with an answer because everyone, all the other introverts have been extroverts have been talking out loud and da da da. And now you've got your big thing, right? And you're going to say it Two, I don't have that fighting energy to fight for space. And three, like, how I'm going to get to my big insight is going to be thinking out loud. Thinking out loud means that you are vocalizing a journey of quote-unquote uncertainty, right? I'm saying, hey, I'm at the beginning of my thinking. What about this? What about that? Have you thought about this? And now we're problem-solving our way across there from a place that doesn't sound like I have an answer, right? But it's hugely valuable because it is the mechanics that get us to the answer right and so for me i struggled when i was younger speaking at all in settings like that especially at a very junior level especially also because i look like a baby um to speak up because i knew i didn't have an answer to give yet but i had a very thoughtful question Uh (laughs) but i was in an environment where thoughtful questions in spaces like those we're seen as not really contributing. Yeah. So like, I think, you know, we started talking about a lot of different angles to this thing. And like 
some of the things that have created a bit of a challenge for us, you know? And maybe we can talk a bit about, like, or I want to explore, like, when did we realize that, okay, this is wrong. It's actually not true that your best answer, that the way that you lead is by having the answer, you know? Mm. What was that for you? I've started sharing a little bit of of what that was for me because now I have the retroactive wisdom to look at myself and I know myself on a deep level so now I understand how I add value and I know it's not about I have the answer up front but still at the time there was a a moment where I was like oh Tenji you you need to stop thinking this way because it's no longer serving you or it's going to block you from advancing what was that for you um so I mean the unfortunate bit is that the dots only connect backwards yeah that's the thing (laughs) as Steve Jobs said Um, so I think where it really started to shift for me, right, um, was actually beginning of this year. Mm. Um, you know, I think when I was in, a um, one of the modules for my master's called, um, economic diplomacy, right. And the reason why I think it was probably one of the most important modules that I did for my master's is because we see it manifesting all over the world, Right. Um, there are economic resources that, you know, certain parts of the world have been endowed with. There are multiple groups who want to benefit from those resources. Unfortunately, as human beings, we're not good about being fair and sharing. So it creates different incentives of how do we actually use these resources to actually the maximum benefit for society, right? We see it in the Middle East, we see it in the DRC, we see it, you know, in Nigeria. There's lots of places where there's a lot of conflict around mm. resources. So basically the whole module was about how do you take different players um, in these societies and bring them together and start co-creating a solution in a way that, you know, they collaborate to actually use these resources for the greater good, right? And you can probably guess the answer is not by giving them a hypothesis on how they should divvy them up, right? <laughs> Hi, everyone. I've thought about this, and I actually think that if you accepted this and you accepted that and you guys just went back home because these aren't your resources, we'd all be happy. Yeah. It's like, I know you've got guns. Yeah. I know you've got bombs. But yeah. frankly, these do not belong to you. Therefore, no. please go. Exactly. <laughs> Um, and I had a professor, and honestly, um, I love this man so much. Um, his name is Professor Brian Ganson, and he's done a lot of um, mediation um, in lots of different places, including South Africa, in you know northern parts of Nigeria, you know places where they're trying to resolve life and death conflict, right? That will shape the future of the region for like decades to come, and. The grace with it, with which she was able to hold uncertainty was inspiring, right? You know, the fact that he would share stories about him going into rooms where you have all these people um, and saying that, I don't have the answer, but I'm here to help create an environment where amongst all of us, we can figure out an answer that actually works for all of us to go ahead with. And that was a very different way of leading that I had never seen before. It's so beautiful. Um, and it really resonated with me because part of the module, it wasn't like theory. We actually had like a, a case, right? Where we spent, you know, the two weeks working through different parts of it and stages of it. 
Um, and it was quite immersive because, you know, there were some people in the class who were playing this role and then somebody else was playing that role. We were like role playing. And I remember it came to a head where we were doing a role play um, and it really felt like we had reached like a deadlock and nobody had the answer. And I was deeply uncomfortable. All I wanted to do was take my things and get out of there because I was like, frankly, I did not come for a reckoning with myself. I came to school. Okay, I came to learn some theory. I came to write some assignments. I did, <laughs> I did not come here for this, right? And then he actually stopped and he said, because it was so uncomfortable for you that there was no answer? Yes, mm-hmm. there was no answer. I didn't have any levers to pull, mm-hmm. right? I didn't have any like cards to throw down the table and say, this is what I think. Because I could understand where everybody was coming from, right? Um... And frankly, I am not in charge of these people, so I can't make them do what I want them to do. Mm. Right? There's nothing keeping us at this table solving this other than a common interest to get an answer that benefits us all. So he stops and he says, is everyone uncomfortable now? (laughs) And I think the, the... level of kind of maturity and like confidence in yourself that it takes to be able to hold an entire room of people in ambiguity, discomfort, fear, uncertainty for me was just incredibly inspiring. I was like, you know what? One, I want to be like this guy. (laughs) I was like, this this is a brand of leadership I've never seen before, but I love it because I feel in, even in this moment of uncertainty and we don't know the answer and we don't know how to get to it. I feel held. Mm, I still feel safe in that place of not knowing. Exactly. Mm. So that was one. Two, it made me reflect on my own journey as a leader and some of the things I had done and the way I used to work. And I just had this like light bulb moment to be like, what have I been doing? Mm. Right? I have been at manager level for like six years by the time I was, seven years by the time I was getting into this module. Mm. And all of a sudden, I could very clearly see all the times I had gotten in my own way, right? In terms of delivering the most impactful answer for clients. And a big reason why I was getting in my own way was because I felt like I needed to have the answer and I needed to walk in with a hypothesis because that's how we worked, Mm. right? But at the same time, I could also see that the times where I had the most impact was the times when I actually allowed people to just explore mm-hmm. and allowed clients to actually really spitball and say, but what I would really love is X, Y, and Z. And I worked with them to actually deliver that. Mm-hmm. So it was a big, it was a big moment of release for me mm-hmm. because I also went from, I must have the answer, I must have the answer, I must have the answer. And, and that posture is very tight, actually, because you're also managing your internal doubts and struggles and questions and uncertainty and anxiety about the answer, mm. right? Because nobody must know that mm. or see that. And because it's your so preciously held answer, the um, deep need for it to be accepted by others is high. It's actually... And that's really stressful. It's actually life or death right it feels like it because it's like i have put my identity on the line with this perspective exactly 
and you know we're either together here or i'm being rejected or you hate me <laughs> just, just like throw the stake in my chest right now and leave me on the battlefield because also <laughs> but also because also like human beings are very simple creatures right we forget Hi. that you know tens of thousands of years ago um we all needed to be in groups to survive exactly you know to get resources to stay safe from wild animals blah blah and keeping that cohesion agreement on what we think as a group was important mm. if you had like a weird opinion that people were like what is this right i mean mm. they're leaving the savannah by yourself and like mm. i mean who knows how long you're gonna last mm. right so i think people really underestimate the very human need to be accepted and part of a group yeah yeah and to also play your role yes right if your role is to lead and leadership is bringing answers the way that you've thought then you will die if you don't have an answer. Exactly. And that's so, so intense, right? Because then suddenly something that could be an open, you know, curious conversation is highly loaded. And Tenji, when I tell you, I was dying multiple times a day. Mm. And the thing that kept me going was just, there was work to do. <laughs> so I may be dying. <laughs> but you just gotta dust it off and keep going. And maybe coming from a meeting that was really hard and maybe, you know, somebody railed into me because, you know, maybe the answer was not received. Blah, blah. So I'm dying on the one hand. Mm. But guess what? I've got five more meetings before this day was over. <laughs> so. Yeah. And like, and that's the thing is that um, we then, because of how we've defined it, it creates a very tight space to operate within you know, and very little room for humanity, for emotions, for just lived experience and for, I can still show up and like be accepted because there's more that I'm bringing here than an answer. And I can say that certainly when I was younger and and at times when I was a consultant, because the definition of the role, right? We are here to bring you an answer you don't have. Um, there would be this feeling of, well, then was I worthy? And did I have a good day? Did I do a good job if I didn't have the answer? Right. And it would lead to situations where I think certain value, like you were saying, was left on the table because I was solving for trying to have an answer versus solving for sometimes in a situation, it's just a conversation. Like, I'm actually here because I need to think through things. Mm. <laughs> now, if you come here and you come and you're like, you know, hitting me with an answer like a sledgehammer, <laughs> you know, then, then I'm not really getting what I really came to this interaction for. Because maybe I'm valuing you for something different to what you think you're valuable for. Yeah. You know, and I think that's really deep. And it kind of leads me into what, you know, brought me to a head, which was... As an executive coach, right, I, and I've come from a consulting world where I'm valued for my answers. That's why they pay us the big bucks. And I'm now working with people who are coming to me with a question that they have in their careers or their leadership. And they've been in the experience way longer than I have. They're actually the expert in their situation, not me. Like, They've been living in a day-to-day. They have way more data on it than I do. And what I'm actually here to do, the more I've coached, the more I understand this. I'm not here just to give you strategies and solutions. Yeah, that helps. Absolutely, right? Because you're here to grow. 
right? And you, and you don't have the answer in your head. That's why you've come to me. But the fascinating thing is that the more I've been coaching, the more people share with me. Because at the end of each coaching journey, I ask, how, you know, how was this experience valuable for you? What is the most, that you, what did you gain from this? They will always say, they say different things. Um, it was so nice having a place where I could just talk. Mm. So I have no one to talk to about these things. Um, and I felt safe. I could be vulnerable. I could access parts of myself and emotions in me that I couldn't bring out. Right. Um, they'll say I was able to take practice with things and have someone to bounce off my thoughts off of. Right. So that's thought partnership. Mm. Um, I had a place of accountability. I was taking action and then I knew I had to take action because you know, Tenji's going to look at me next week and say, so how did your growth practice go? <laughs> and there's going to be crickets, you know? And so they're coming for different things. And then there'll be, uh, and I grew so much, et cetera, et cetera. And this practice you gave me. So yes, I am bringing expertise and I am bringing answers in that if this is something you're struggling with, here's a growth practice you can do that's going to help you to build the skill to be able to overcome that aspect, right? That mm. you're facing or that challenge you're facing. Or I don't know how to delegate. Okay, here's a few things in best practice of delegation. Those are things I do bring. But especially the more senior my clients are, like when I'm coaching a CEO, that stuff is, a lot of it is about mindset, managing complex relationships, prioritization, internal dynamics, what's happening with your team, a place to problem solve and have thought partnership is a lot more of what I'm bringing. And therefore... If I come to that session saying, hi, oh, you're struggling with relationships. Here are five things you can do (laughs) to improve your relationship with your ex-co. You know, they'll look at me like, what? (sighs) And number two, I started realizing that the sessions where, and you're going to hear me talk about human design again, because human design is like my bestie. I'm so in love with it. One of the things I've learned that my human design chart has shown me is that one of my skills is listening. And the listening is asking the right question to get to the truth so that you're dealing with the truth. Because in a lot of situations, I mean, how many times have we had clients who scoped out work and then actually that's not the work that they need. They yeah. actually need something very different. Yeah. You know, or we're implementing a solution and we're like, oh, this didn't account for this reality on the ground. Or there's this unspoken fear or lack of capability that's at the heart of what's going on and what you actually really need help with first. Basically, how are we solving the right problem here? And the only way you can do that is by deeply listening and asking the right questions and not being afraid of any answer that comes your way and not trying to keep yourself in a job. Because if you also view yourself as a person who has to come and like bring answers, then if I'm not bringing an answer, then I think that I'm obsolete. Mm. So if I start forcing you to use me for answers... I'm not serving you in the way that you need to be served because of my insecurity, right? And because I'm not understanding that actually you're valuing me for another whole, a whole other basket of skills that I um, maybe have not realized. So my coming to a head moment was actually acknowledging that, especially in my job as a coach, because I'm a leader in such a big way because I'm leading individuals, right? Um, it's about facilitation, and creating a space where people can really share. And the depth of transformation that I'm able to achieve is only because 
we're working on the heart of the issue and I'm not coming and regurgitating HBR articles and my leadership courses and my coaching certifications and everything I've learned and researched because I know all of that stuff. Mm. You know what I mean? And so that's actually like shown me that therefore what is leadership? You know, if it's not having the answers to everything. <laughs> so how would you define what leadership is that? That's a very good question. And I'm, I'm really glad that we've arrived here, right? Because I think my model of leadership has had to change quite a lot. Um, I always thought, I mean, we, we had the general picture of what a leader looks like, right? Um, but at the times where I have been my most effective at like working with a team to deliver results, I was pretty much doing the opposite of what we are told great leadership looks like, right? And there was this weird dissonance, I would say, which was, I feel like intuitively I'm doing the right things. We're delivering a lot of impact. Everybody's happy. But I don't know if I'm ticking the boxes <laughs> of like demonstrating that I am a leader, right? Because I, my style is definitely a lot softer um, and it's a lot more about role modeling um, the things that allow us to get to good results versus telling this is what we're going to do, right? So um, the times I've been most successful is when I've role model behaviors that allow my teams to be empowered, um, to have a high bar, mm -hmm. to be honest and transparent about what we're doing, um, to raise issues when issues come up, um, to be in integrity, mm -hmm. right? Those are the moments when you give, as a leader, when you give people permission to do that, one, people will go to war for you. Mm because they feel safe. They know this is a person who will be honest with me. This is a person who will support me. And this is a person who's actually leading us in the right direction. We're not messing around. Um, I think two people feel empowered, right? Um, the times where I have struggled with people working, um, in teams is when I felt like my leaders were not being honest with what we were doing. Right. And I'm not saying honest as in they're telling lies or whatever, mm. but they're just not being vulnerable. Yeah. Right? Because a lot of the work that people do is hard work. And it doesn't help when your leader comes in and says, oh, guys, this is going so well. And meanwhile, you are like <laughs> in the fix, right? Yeah. Um, so even just being the leader who says, guys, this is really hard work that we're doing here. Mm. And I don't know as well. Mm. It's hard for me too. It's hard for me too. Mm. I'm also struggling. But I truly believe that if we can crack this thing, this would be incredibly life-changing for the people we're working for. Mm. That's inspiring, right? So for me, I think leadership looks like, one, being clear with myself. What are my values when it comes to, do, to doing work? And how do I make sure I live those out very openly and loudly? And that includes the honesty about, I don't know, right? And therefore, when I do that, how do I create a space for my teams, clients, everyone involved to be able to do that same thing. Yeah. So we can work together effectively. Um, and it took me a long time to accept that because it, that doesn't look like being the one who's always talking and jumping up and writing on boards and, you know, yeah. that's not what it always looks like. Mm -hmm. Sometimes what it looks like is 
I'm going to spend the week having conversations individually with everyone to understand exactly what the challenges are, where's the headspace at. Then, you know, thinking through, okay, based on everything that I've heard, how do I want to conduct that meeting on Friday? Mm. Right. And then people show up to a meeting and they're all surprised that everyone is kind of agreeing. They're like, oh, I didn't know that, blah, blah. But the reason why you've rocked up and you're agreeing is because I've really thought about how are you going to actually have this conversation in a way that really addresses everybody's needs, right? And that type of leadership looks very different from what we've been taught um, it's supposed to look like. Yeah. And just what you're saying is also just making me think that therefore we need to be able to speak to that right? Like when you're in an organization that isn't necessarily not, I don't want to say organization because actually I think a, a lot of companies, the majority of companies aren't explicitly defining leadership in that way, right? They're thinking about it as the metrics, right? Mm-hmm. Are you hitting your numbers on X, Y, Z, right? And it means that there's then an imperative to actually advocate for yourself. And when I say advocate, I mean, tell your own story, Right? And tell the story about, well, how is your leadership contributing? And how is the way you're moving giving us great results? Because, like you said, that moment where you are struggling to figure out, am I ticking the boxes? But I'm getting the outcomes, right? We focus a lot, especially in like performance discussions, when we're speaking to people, we, fo- we focus a lot on like the box ticking. Mm. And what it means is that we have to shift the conversation to the outcomes Mm. and how we position the story around how we got those outcomes. Mm. Because those are things that I I don't know about you, but I haven't seen like written in a job description. Like the job description will say stakeholder management. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Works well with teams, right? That's so generic. Right. But here, what we're talking about is the deep listening, the the deep collaboration, the releasing of your agenda, the ability to hold ambiguity, the lack of fear of risk. Right. Because there's risk in not knowing. What if we have a meeting on Friday and we don't know on Tuesday? Mm. If you're terrified of going into the meeting on Friday with no answer, you'll force your team to know on Tuesday. Even if we all around the table know that we don't know. <laughs> Even if we're all like secretly be like, uh. <laughs> okay, but we're afraid to move the meeting out or we feel pressure to come to the meeting saying we have answers, right? And so I feel like what this maybe is, is starting to speak to, and there's something, it's, it's come to my head twice, so let me not try to keep a train of thought and just say it. Something that you said that I loved, Nafe, when we were first preparing this conversation was, how safe you felt with leaders who are able to create the space where it is okay for us to hold all the unknown. Yes. Right? Yes. And those kinds of leaders have made you feel way safer than the people who've come and tried to act like they know. Yeah, because people are smart, right? People are smart. You can, you know, shout until the cows come home that you've got the answer. But if you don't have the answer, it's it's like a little unspoken thing. And people may not actually challenge you on that because technically you're their manager, so they might not. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're actually creating an impression of, it's going to sound harsh, dishonesty. That is exactly it. <laughs> the truth is harsh. 
dishonesty. Yeah. And now the, the very smart people you're working with are going to be like, well, if I cannot trust this manager to be honest with me with where we are right now, what can I trust them with? What else are they lying about? Exactly. <laughs> and I think that's mm-hmm. what we don't realize, that we are undermining ourselves and our credibility by pretending we know stuff when we don't. Mm. I remember being in a meeting and somebody incredibly senior, when I say incredibly senior, you know, I was in that meeting to just really listen, if we're being honest, right? Mm. Um, you know, 20 plus years experience, like really knows what they're doing. And he sat down and he said, huh, that's a really good question. Because I mean, we've gone to them with questions, right? Mm. Because they're the person you go to when you've tried everything to solve the thing. And there's that one last thing that nobody can solve on the team. So therefore you take it to this person. Mm. And he was like, huh, that's a really good question. I actually don't know. But I'm pretty sure if we put our heads together, we can figure it out. And like, so inspiring. I was on mute, but my face lit up because I was just like, oh my God, wow. We can do that? <laughs> wow. And I literally was having an epiphany on the meeting. And he doesn't know that he was role modeling for me what like true, confident leadership looks like. Mm. Because these people have come to me with the one problem they all collectively cannot solve. Mm. And now I have to tell them that... Neither can I. Neither can I. And that's actually fine. The world is not going to end. I was just like, yes, that is exactly the kind of thing that I want to hear. Right? Yeah. Um, so for me, it's actually become more and more import- important to be honest about what I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Because that actually increases your credibility. Because... It's a signaling mechanism that says, when I'm giving you an answer, I'm confident in that answer. That answer is known. Yes. If you hear me not give an answer, it's because I don't have the answer. That Mm. strengthens the answers you give. Mm. If you bullshit around some of your answers and there's other answers you're sure, then people will be like, but then was everything else they were saying also bullshit or not? That credibility piece comes in. Mm. And there's nothing like the confidence in yourself to know that you're still an, an amazing senior expert, um, even if you don't know one thing, right? Because that one thing he doesn't know did not take away from how badass he is in all the other areas of knowledge that he was able to bring, mm. right? And other areas and, and to other clients and other situations, mm. right? Mm. So I think there's something super, um, I think, exemplary there. And I feel that, you know, when it comes to what we're trying to do, you know, in life and and, in the world that we're in right now, I think we're just trying to create spaces, right? Where we can just be more us, right? And be flawed and beautiful humans, Um, limited and amazing, right? You know, expert and learning, Mm. (laughs) sure and uncertain. It's this, the ability to hold both, right? And I think the more we're able to hold both, the more life becomes bigger for us. And I think the more powerful we become. Exactly. There's this article that I was reading. I'm always reading an article. Um, It was an HBR and it was a video I was watching. This guy was, he's written an article that says, why do we promote incompetent men? (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that's a doozy. It was such a strong headline. (laughs) 
and and it's like one of HBR's Harvard Business Review's most popular articles. Like, and every time because people the CEO, people want to know the people are genuinely are curious. <laughs> and he was saying like every time a CEO steps down after like demonstrated incompetence or really bad outcome, his article shoots up in popularity to the top read <laughs> on HBR again, because people are like, but how did he get promoted in the first place? And it's interesting because what he was talking about was um, there are actually behaviors that you can look at to determine. So let me step back. He says there are key characteristics of good leadership. And these characteristics are things like listens, you know, ability to listen, um, ability to actually nurture talent and bring the best onto the table. There's, there's all these things that are things women are typically more effortlessly good at because we're socialized more into those behaviors than men are Uh right and there's a humility piece there's a bunch of things and then he has a list of the characteristics that the majority of leaders have Uh and the majority of leaders are men Uh and those characteristics tend to be things like you know narcissistic arrogant confident (laughs) um, things like moves quickly um all these things if you think of me these words that i'm saying these are the things that people usually say oh that's a leader and and like always knows and comes with an answer Mm. and so society is actually thinking these characteristics are leadership right they're proxies for good leadership but actually what the article says is they're proxies for overconfidence Mm. and the people who demonstrate these behaviors they ask a question, which is, are you a narcissist? These people, or do you think you're better than everyone else and absolutely deserves this role? They will always report yes. <laughs> Whereas the, the people who actually have more of the leadership characteristics that I mentioned before, they'll tend to say, no, I don't think I'm better than anyone else, you know? Um, or, you know, it's me and my team is what it takes to deliver. Whereas these guys are like, I'm essential to <laughs> the success of the company, Right. And so what's interesting is that companies are misattributing leadership, right, to actually displays of confidence. And this thing of I always have the answer is one version of a display of confidence. So what what he talks about in the article and what we're kind of being invited to ask ourselves is like, how do we then speak to the value that comes from these unconventional, you know, behaviors, that actually drive leadership. Because if we're saying to be a great leader, you don't have to know everything, but that goes against, you know, some of the typical ways people will evaluate, therefore, who's ready for leadership and who's not, who yeah. should we promote and who and who should we not. The person who's not directly coming with answers all the time is not going to be promoted, but the person who is will be, but they may not be the right, you know, candidate. I think we, there's a role that we should play in like, we have to speak about ourselves differently. I agree with when you. When we're leading at this level. And we need to play an active role in telling the story about what we're doing and how we're driving value and being more able to attribute our outcomes and success to these almost 
Because sometimes it can feel like it's a nebulous thing. Very How do I so. identify that? Because for your ability to say enough, for you to say, oh, it's because I speak to all these people, I role model, I da, 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 and I know those are the keys to my success. The average person can't use that, that language to, to like say that, right? So how do we go in and learn that language? What is our individual language of the way we lead that's outside of answers and play an active role in communicating that in our performance reviews when people ask us how things are going talk about the results and how we're getting to the results in that kind of language that then also role models and brings about a change in languaging and understanding within the collective and corporate about how do we actually get results i mean i completely agree with you and you you hit the nail on the head right these attributes are often very nebulous yeah and they often very hard to it's often very hard to separate your individual achievements from the team's achievements, right? Which they say you have to when you're interviewing, right? Exactly. Like when you are saying I have delivered X, it's much easier to say, I told the team this was the answer, they went and did it, here's the bump in profits, right? Mm. That it's a straight line. Mm. And nobody can argue that. When you the reason why people find it very difficult to speak about these nebulous attributes of influencing, listening, you know, creating a safe environment for people to be effective is because a lot of the times these are actually personality attributes and they come naturally to people. A lot of people don't even know they're doing them. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, a lot of people who spend time, I mean, in consulting, for example, a lot of us will spend time with executives because we actually genuinely care about them as human beings. And we want to listen and we want to make connection and these things are important to us. But we don't know that those things are actually doing something and they're creating trust and they're building credibility and they're doing X, Y, and Z. So it is very hard for you to then say, because I went and spoke to that person on the mm-hmm. side, therefore, it's almost like a bit of a dotted, a very faint dotted line. Mm-hmm. Therefore, we got to this outcome, right? So I think it's exactly right what you're saying that. It's about really taking those very nebulous things and really starting to join the dots to outcomes, Mm. even though it might feel difficult and nebulous. But if that is your brand of leadership, then that's what it is. Yeah, exactly. And that's where like um, speaking to people, like working with a coach, working with someone like me, having friends in your life who know you really well and can say, oh, babe, you're so good at doing this thing. (laughs) You know, I hear you say this and this all the time. Like, that sounds like it's an outstanding skill of yours, right? Like I did that with with one of my friends where I think one of his outstanding skills is he's very values driven. He's going to be in a future podcast episode. Yay, I'm very excited. But like, I think then we have to be actually quite thoughtful about investing in this. Yes. For ourselves, if we're leaders, if we want to be able to really tell these stories, especially if you're a woman, especially if you're a person of color, if you fall into any of the buckets that like Nafi was talking about earlier that make you an other, therefore your value is less easy to witness in your environment. The onus is on you to then over, over deliver it, right? And to start with the outcome. I achieved X in my business area. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's talk about that. And how I did it was I did one, two, three things, but I achieved X, right? Versus, oh, so, you know, what are you bringing to the table? You don't start with all the soft things. Cause then it's like, okay, that's very nice. But then what does that, how does that make us breakfast? Right? Like, (laughs) 
right? So I think that's number one. And I think number two is, like I, like I said, working with a coach and stuff. But number three is also putting this in the way we talk about ourselves on LinkedIn and in our CVs, you know, like if we're having like a summary paragraph and we're like, well, who's this person as a leader and what is their career story? What am I getting with them? It's not just talking about the hard things, like the hard, you know, skills and numbers, the tangible things like numbers of sectors we've worked in, the deep expertise, the results we've achieved, we've opened this division, we've transformed this operating unit. But how we did it was we have a deep leadership spike in A, B, and C way of bringing through, you know, value. Because I think there's a role that we can all play in doing this, Mm. right, for the collective and for corporate. And two for us to gain even deeper confidence because someone can see that and still see your CV. And then it's like, oh, okay. If I'm in a company and my culture is suffering in a particular way, we have a crisis of trust. She's the person that I need to bring in or he's the person I need to bring in because he's going to lead with exactly the type of culture we're trying to introduce. Right? And your ability to talk to that becomes so key. And I think for me, those are the spikes that I'm most proud of, right? Mm. Because those leadership spikes are directly kind of drawn from my values as a person, Mm -hmm. right? Um, So this thing around like really understanding what, you know, a client needs beyond what they're saying they need, because I'm listening, I'm really unpacking and I'm really seeking to connect with you as a person and really see things from your perspective, right? Mm. That's a superpower. This idea of like creating a followership of people who are excited to work with you because they know the bar is high and you're going to compromise on the bar, but you're going to support them. You're going to be honest with them. You're going to be transparent. You're going to help them be successful. For me, those are the things that make my heart sing, right? So if people Mm say I'm a good leader because of those things, then I know I'm doing the right thing Yeah. because I value those things. Um, If people say I'm a good leader because I'm able to like um, mimic a brand of leadership that is like the most assertive, the most loud at the board with the pen and, and, and yeah, you get ahead in life, but at the same time, I'm not also being authentic. Right. Mm. And there's something very soul deathy about mm. being celebrated when you're not being authentic. Yeah. And you want to be loved for the things you love the most about yourself. Yes. You know, and you don't love the most, the fact that you deliver numbers. You and you know all the answers. You don't. You know <laughs> what I mean? You love your heart more than any of those things. Exactly. You know? And so there's this... I just love that. Like, I love what you're saying. And, and I, I love that it is about being courageous enough to let the things that are viewed or that we perceive as the soft aspects of us be our superpowers. Because if I truly believe that if we know how to talk about these things, um, we'll be able to demonstrate that they are superpowers. And number two... I know for me and for other leaders that I've spoken to, um, that's what stands out in an interview. Like if you're in a senior interview and there's five people around the table um, being who are options and everyone had like outstanding, by the time you're there, you have an outstanding CV, forget about it, right? What is the differentiator? These are the things that are the differentiators. Because then I know how are you going to move when you come into my organization? You know, where can I really put you, you know, where I really need to see results and are you going to be a sustainable hire or an unsustainable hire because of, you know, maybe lack of fit. 
And so I just think that that's beautiful. Oh, Nafi, I want to keep talking. I want to keep talking because that's what we do. (laughs) (laughs) We meet up and we talk for hours. But we have to wrap up this episode. So everyone listening, I hope that this has been valuable for you guys. Before we go, Nafe, um, I'm going to ask you, where can people find you in case they didn't hear your previous episode? Okay, so I moonlight as a content creator, so you can find me on Instagram. The handle is fashion underscore kill underscore her. Perfect. That's primarily where I'm at. I'm at. You can probably also find me on Twitter under the same handle and then potentially on LinkedIn. Yeah. yeah. I'll link you at all of those resources. Everyone, thanks for being here. Have a lovely rest of your day. And I hope that we've left you with some food for thought and some inspiration to just be your bold self and overcome the need to know everything. Because you don't. You just need to be able to help us get to the answer. All right. Until next time, keep leading abundantly. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. I hope it's inspired you to take action that brings you closer to leading as the truest version of your abundant self. If you enjoyed this episode, please would you consider leaving a five-star rating and following the podcast. It really helps other people like you to find me and benefit from this free leadership resource. Yours in abundance. Until next time.